to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Man, am I excited about it. Uh, it's, it's going to be a study through the book of Ephesians, and this is, is just, this, the first chapter is ridiculous. It is just so full, so rich, so incredible that I, I, I'm like, dude, I cannot wait to teach this passage because this, there's so much there. But this is going to be the entire book. I've read through the whole book a few times, and it's just so deep. And, you know, I'm calling the sermon series Regs to Riches. Regs to Riches. And the reason why I'm calling it that is because that's who we are. We are literally, we have been transformed by Christ. When we came to Christ, we were in regs. We were poverty, you know. But Christ gave us his riches when we came by faith through grace to him. And uh, so it is the transformation uh, story. It is the greatest adoption story that has ever been told. This is, this is a real-life Annie story. Listen, where God the Father from the foundation of the world was thinking of you, and he, was, he chose you from the foundation of the world to be in right relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. His blood spilt on your behalf so that you could be in right relationship with him. He adopted you into the family of God. Listen, you are not all children of God. If you're not in right relationship with Christ, you're a creation of God. You are not a child of God. You have to be adopted into this family. And what we're going to see is the deep riches that are found in the adoption, far greater than Oliver Warbucks could ever, ever give you. I promise. The Father has adopted you through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is really what we're going to look at. Here's, here's the problem with that is that many Christians never, ever really live in the riches that they've been given in Christ. Many, many Christians uh, believe, well, you know, I'll, I'll have those riches when I get to heaven. No, that's not right. Theologically, that's not right. Christ has given to them to you today. You can have them in the here and now. You don't have to wait for heaven. Some of us are sitting here in rags waiting to be clothed in the riches of Christ, and you have them now. And, and Paul is going to remind you this morning and through the next 12 weeks or 14 weeks, however long it takes us, that, that you have the riches in Christ. You need to just walk in them. You need to walk in them. There was a, there was a real-life lady named Hattie, Hattie Green. And Hattie was uh, uh, what was, she was known uh, in the, uh, the Great Depression era just prior to that, the, the early 1900s. She died in 1916. But she was known as the most wealthy uh, woman in America at the time she lived. She was also known as the, the Witch of Wall Street, so anyway. But, um, but she earned the title as America's greatest miser. Because listen, she, like many Christians, lived beneath their means. Now, I, I've never met a Christian that's lived beyond their means in Christ, in the riches in Christ. You cannot spend the riches that Christ has given you. I dare you to challenge God on that and, and say, I'm going to try and outspend the riches of Christ in my life. You can't do it. But many of us do live in this, this, this level of beneath our means, like Hattie Green. Listen, this lady was worth $100 million in 1916 when she died. $100 million. But she was such a miser with her money that it was said that she wouldn't even heat her water to, to eat oatmeal because it costs too much money to heat it. In fact, her son had a serious leg injury, and uh, because she didn't want to bear the medical expenses of getting her son's leg looked at at a hospital, she searched and searched and searched for a free, free clinic that she could take him to. In the meantime, his leg got an infection and had to be amputated. It was said that Miss Hattie was, um, in her dying day, was arguing the merits of skim milk because it was cheaper than whole milk. Listen. This lady had everything that you could ever imagine. She could have had everything that she ever imagined. She had the riches beyond what people in, in that time, in that era, I mean, it was ridiculous, $100 million, and she lived like she had nothing. And that's many Christians today, living in poverty, living in the rags when you've been given the riches of Christ. And Paul wants to remind us this morning who we are and what's been given to you in Christ. Paul is writing to a group of people who are doctrinally sound people, who are living their lives rightly, who are loving each other, at least in the moment here. And yet they are living beneath their means. And he's going to call them up to the place of where Christ is seated. And he's going to call you up with them. 
He's going to say, are you going to experience the fullness of what Christ has given you through his blood on the cross? Or will you choose to live in poverty? The thing that you have to understand as we enter into this, this, this letter to these people in Ephesus is that this is a letter to believers. This is not a letter to unbelievers. None of this applies to somebody who's outside of Christ. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this does not apply to you. If you want it to apply to you, you simply need to receive Christ into your life, to, to, to receive the cleansing from his blood, to receive redemption, to be bought back out of the hands of sin and, and the slavery from death. God has given you Christ. If you want to experience these things, you must come to him through Christ. You have to come that way. There is no other way. As we, uh, the, 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 the book is, or the letter is written in such a way that it's divided perfectly into two sections. Chapters one through three are doctrinal, and they deal with the, the rags to riches transition, what God has done for you and I. Doctrinally, it's going to, there are going to be some really big terms that we'll do our best to break down for you, but some really deep theological thoughts that Paul writes, even in the, the very first 14 verses here, but uh, it is the first three chapters dealing doctrinally with what God has done for us. And then chapters four through six speak practically about, the, the, it, it's a call to you and I to walk in the riches of Christ, to apply what God has given us and to walk in those things uh, today. It, it is an, an incredible uh, uh, letter that hopefully you are going to be incredible really blessed in. So stand with me if you would. We're going to read, uh, begin to read in chapter 1 and verse 1 of Ephesians. Here is what the Word of God says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed, to the, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in himself or in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. What deep truth we have before us, Lord. Dare we not think that these words are for somebody else, Lord. May you help us to receive them this morning, each of us individually. God, you so desire to unveil the, the incredible things that you've given to us through your son. His death is so effective that it takes us, Lord, transitions us from being dead to alive. Will you help us today, God, as brothers and sisters, as your children, to realize the riches we have in your son even now, right now? And for those that don't know you, God, will you open their hearts to you this morning that they might see the glorious inheritance that is given to those who believe in your son? So come and wreck us this morning, God. Get rid of our theology and speak, Lord, to us through your Holy Spirit that we would understand what you would say to us today. 
Father, we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The title of my message this morning is The Things That God Has Done. The Things That God Has Done. As I read these first 14 verses, I was blown away, man. I was just like, oh, Lord, look at the things that you've done. Look at these incredible things that you've done, Lord. Paul gives us an incredible rendition of the works of our great triune God. He does an incredible job of informing us of all the inclusive riches we have in Christ made available through the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We begin with a short introduction in verses 1 through 2 where Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have to do a little bit of work on the authenticity of this letter before we move into the theology of it. First and foremost, we find that Paul is the writer of this letter through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is a sent one. That word apostle simply means sent one. He is a sent one of Christ Jesus. Jesus has empowered Paul to be a speaker on his behalf. It is by the will of God. No one can be a servant of God unless it is the will of God. Through Christ Jesus. That's the way that it works. Now, he, he's writing to saints. Those are people that have been set apart. That word saint simply means holy, set apart for God's purpose. He, he goes on to say that these saints are faithful in Christ Jesus. You might be sitting here this morning and not feeling so faithful. Well, listen, maybe you have that perspective incorrect. Maybe it's an incorrect view. The idea of being faithful is not simply in being faithful in your flesh. That's not what it means. It means being faithful in Christ Jesus. That means that you're, you're simply trusting Him and Him alone to do everything in your life. It's not about what you can do in your own power. It's about what Christ has done for you. And you are in Him, and so you are faithful in Christ. Try and be faithful outside of Christ, and you will find yourself incredibly unfaithful. There is no other way to the Father. Through Christ Jesus, we, we need to be faithful in staying in Christ Jesus, not trying to find another way to the Father, uh, some more favor somehow, some way. No, it's by Jesus and Jesus alone. MacArthur said, uh, from God's side, believers are those whom he has made holy, which is the meaning of saints. From man's side, believers are those who are faithful, those who have trusted in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Our faithfulness is this, that we, have, that we continue to trust in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation, sanctification, and glorification. Let us not try and come to him in any other way. It was Christ who made us saints by giving us his righteousness. We could never obtain it in our flesh, and it is Christ in whom we must continue to trust if we will ever have the hope of living in these glorious riches that he has given us. It's in Christ. And you're going to see this theme over and over again in these verses. It's in Him. It's in Christ. It's in Him. It's in Him. It's not in you. It's in Him. Who were you found in this morning? I hope you're found in Christ, being faithful in that. Some of the earliest manuscripts omit the word Ephesus here, but that is where this letter is headed. To a young Timothy, who is the pastor of this church at this point, Paul in prison is writing to these believers in Ephesus. Ephesus is the epicenter of the pagan worship of the goddess Diana or Artemis. You might know her as. You can read this account of Paul going into this area in his first missionary journey and he wrecks the place with the gospel. And people, you know, the, these Demetrius and these silversmiths are, are factoring these, these idols of Diana and they're selling them to all the people that would come to there. Come to, to Ephesus to worship Diana. It was the, her temple was the seventh wonder of the world at the time. And Paul, uh, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the way, not Paul because he was super smart, because he understood the scriptures, by the power of the Holy Spirit, don't misunderstand that, he being sent into that place was used incredibly to completely and totally shut down the, 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 the movement of these idols to the point that the silversmiths were worried about going out of business. So what they do, they created a riot. They might kill Paul, but he was kicked out of town. 
The gospel had entered the city. It, it was an important city for Rome, the Roman Empire, commercially and politically. It was, had a population in the first century of up to about 250,000 people. It was the, the biggest city in the, in the Asia Minor area, which is modern-day Turkey. And what we find there is a vibrant, bold church. Vibrant, bold church. These people are loving Christ. They are loving each other. They are sharing the gospel. People are getting saved. And uh, um, Paul, before he goes to Jerusalem, be, you know, right after he is, he, before he goes to, to, be, uh, to, to be imprisoned and sent to Rome, so this is before he even wrote this letter, he has what is considered probably the first regional pastors conference in Miletus. It's in Acts chapter 20 if you're taking notes. And here's what Paul said to these pastors who were pastoring the churches. It wasn't a single church. These multiple churches that were in the region of Ephesus. He said in Acts chapter 20 verses 28 through 31, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Here's the warning. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul was warning the, the, this church in Ephesus. He knew his fate when he was headed to Jerusalem. He knew that, he would, he, that chains were awaiting him, as the word would say. And so he called these pastors to himself in Ephesus, understanding the importance of this particular church and what God would do through it. And he warned them about one thing. Make sure you stand in the doctrine of the apostles. They were doing the other things. They were loving each other. In fact, when he writes this letter in prison, they're still loving each other. He, he'll mention it several times as we work through the passages. They were loving each other. So what they needed to be concerned about, what they needed to be steadfast in is against wolves that were going to come in the church, and they did an incredible job of that. How do we know? Because some, you know, probably 40 years later, 35 years later, when John wrote the book of Revelation, Jesus himself spoke these words about the church at Ephesus. And here's what he said in verses 2 through 3. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So you have this vibrant church that's doctrinally correct, that is standing fast in the boldness of Christ, and they are doing an incredible job. But what happened? Jesus said he had something against them. 35 years later, after Paul wrote this letter, Jesus said, you left your first love. You see that, how that happens, church? Simple. You start full hyper-focusing on one thing, and that's all, you, all we care about is doctrine. All we care about is doctrine. And, 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 and they forgot about living out the love of Christ in the community. But man, are we doctrinally correct. I mean, there's not a single person that could, could you know, do a disposition on the fact that Jesus is God or, or whatever. We have it doctrinally correct. We are, we are stewards of the Bible. We are stewards of God's truth. We are scholars. But we are lacking the greatest thing. We are lacking love. And it's, this, it's, it's a sad statement to have Jesus say, hey, it's great. I know your works. You're, you're really super set apart for my purposes, but there's one thing that you forgot to do. You, you forget to love people. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, love is the chief thing. It's the chief thing. In fact, if we don't love each other in the church, the Bible says that the, the world will never want to be part of it. We as a group of people are loving each other fiercely for the sake of unbelievers. For the sake of unbelievers that we would be different. What does it mean to be set apart? It means to be different. How are we to be different? We're supposed to love each other. This church forgot to do that. <laughs> Corinth. Corinth. Corinth was a, a, a church where morals went, but love stayed. Ephesus was a church where, where um, morals stayed, but love went. God cares about both, folks. He cares about us being loving, 
doctrinally correct people. Listen, don't hyper-focus on one and without the other. We need both. We need to be stewards of God's Word. We need to students of God's Word. We need to be Bereans, and we need to check what it says, and we need to prepare against wolves and all these things, but we also need to make sure that we love each other. Make sure that you're loving. Make sure you're exhibiting Christ's love. Now, there is something, there is like what I would call an ancient biblical mic drop right here. Like Paul literally drops the mic when he does, he does this very simple, very simple greeting to these, to these people in Ephesus. And he says, grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't seem very impactful on the front end. You might think like at the surface level, you're like, okay, he's just saying, hey, what's up? Glad to see you guys. No, he's not. There is incredible theological truth right here in the very greeting that Paul gives. And it's a common greeting that he uses oftentimes. And here is the theological truth, that you can never really, really receive the peace of God until you know the grace of God. It's grace first. And you've heard that probably over and over again, but that is the truth. Let it hit you one more time. You will never truly experience the peace of God until you have received the grace of God. What is the grace of God? His unmerited favor for you. His unmerited favor for you, that God loves you with a love that would bleed for you, that would die for you, that would rise again from the dead for you. That's how much he loves you. He, you have his favor, folks. Even as an unbeliever, you have his favor, for he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You have his favor. You don't need to fight for that. Paul says, you will never know the grace, the, the, the peace of God until you know the grace of God. Now, as we move into verses 3 through 14, Paul unleashes a theological wonder in what is considered by most scholars as the longest sentence in the Bible. Verses 3 through 14 in the ancient Greek, which is the, the, the language that this was written in, is one sentence. There is no period, no commas, nothing. This is just one thought. Paul just goes, boom. And like, I'm going through this going, dude, I could spend weeks going through each one of these doctrinal positions that he just blurts out in one sentence. And so we have to be careful that we don't pick it apart, but we take it all in context because it's one sentence. If, if the Holy Spirit wanted us to consider, we will consider each individual thought, but if he wanted us to, to camp on those thoughts too, too long, we'll make a mess of it. And so what he does is he doesn't use any punctuation. Just says it, here's the thought. This is this is the big picture. I want you to grasp this. And so we need to take it as such, even though we will go through it line by line here. Uh, Paul is declaring here in verses 3 through 14 that the, the works of the triune Godhead, what does that mean? The triune Godhead. That means that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all have uh, some function in your salvation, in your sanctification, in your glorification. They all work collectively together as one. They are one. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Uh, you know, the Holy Spirit is one with God. They are three people in one God. They are God collectively is the title. You know, you can call him Jehovah. That is the title of God. But, it, you know, and then umbrella, you could break it down to three people. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jehovah, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. When you read the word God in the Bible, it's speaking of the Trinity. When you read the word Jehovah, it's speaking of the Trinity. It's speaking of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we find it right here in the first chapter of Ephesus, the triune works, uh, the, the works of the triune Godhead. First, we consider the works of the, the Father here in verses, one through, uh, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, speaking of Jesus. Now, Paul pronounces praise upon praise to the Father here, and rightly so, because there is so much for us to be thankful for, amen? Like, 
listen, if God wouldn't do a, a single thing more than he's done in your life, he's already done too much, has he not? He's done so much. I mean, you could sit here all day long and we could go through, we could pass the mic around, we could hear thing after thing after thing after thing that God the Father has done in your life, that he has blessed you with all kinds of incredible things. He is a father and he knows how to bless his children. He's already done enough in the fact that he sent his son to redeem you. Now, that isn't why we praise God. Don't misunderstand that. We don't praise God simply because of what he's done. In fact, that would be totally the wrong concept. We praise God because of who he is, because he's God. He's your creator. He's your father. He is your savior. That is why we praise him. And the fact that he's done incredible things in your life is just added reason to praise him. We, we should wake up in the morning praising God. We should go to bed as we lay our head down. The last thoughts, we should just go, oh, thank you, God. Praise be your name. Why? Because he's done so much and because he's worthy of your praise. He's worthy of your praise. I don't know what you're going through today, but here's the deal. You can still praise him no matter what you're going through because he is doing an incredible work and you may not see it right now, but he is. He works everything out for good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. He is doing something. So trust him, but praise him. Give him praise. He is worthy of your praise. Who is he? He is our God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is, and that's why we praise him. Now, there are four specific things that Paul mentions here about the Father and what he has done for us. Firstly, notice that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. James said it like this in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Listen, it doesn't matter what blessings you have in your life, God is the source of them. You know, if you are hashtag blessed today, it's because God has hashtag blessed you. He's blessed you. Listen, it's not by chance. You just didn't by chance walk into a blessing. That's not, no, no. If there's a blessing in your life, it's because God inserted it in your life. He is that active in your, listen, God is not hands-off. He is intimately involved in your everyday life, and he inserts blessings in your life at specific moments that you would look up, that you would give him praise. And so oftentimes, we're so focused on the here and now, on the horizontal, that we forget to go, thank you, Lord, that came from you. The job that you got, the, the wife that you got, the, the, the kid that you got, whatever it is, I don't care whatever blessing it is, oh, those are blessings, yeah, don't, don't say they're not because <laughs> you'd be in big trouble. But all, of, all that's going on in your life, it doesn't matter what it is, if God is blessing you, it's, or if you're blessed, it's because God is blessing you. Don't forget that. He has given us what? He's given us every spiritual blessing. What, what is he talking about? It, he didn't say he's giving you every physical blessing or every material blessing, although he does that. But that's not, Paul is calling us to, to the chief of blessings. The chief of blessings are spiritual blessings, blessings that go beyond this world. And he's saying he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. What does he mean? What is the spiritual blessing? 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to, all, uh, to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness. That is every spiritual blessing, folks. He has given you everything you need to live for him. Every spiritual blessing. Wait, do we have to wait for heaven for that? No, you have that now. So you can live in that now. If you're missing something in your life, it's not because you need more of God. It's because he needs more of you. It's because you have to surrender something. He's given everything to you, Peter said. But Peter's a man that knows. And he said, Christ gave you all. If you're lacking today, it's, be it's not because God hasn't given it to you. It's because you're failing to walk in it. It's because you're failing to walk in it. It's a mindset. If you want to live a godly life, then you have to choose that. You have to walk in that. It's not just going to come. Even though he's given it to you, you have to receive it. And you have to purposely walk in it. He's given you every spiritual blessing. Whatever you think you need, you have. 
Secondly, he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should walk holy and blameless before him. This is what is known as the doctrine of election. And, and many people, you know, get super afraid, right? Immediately when they hear that word, election, and they think, oh my gosh, God is so unfair. What has he done? Listen, many people get extremely messed up when it comes to this, this doctrine of, of election. But here's the plain and simple truth about it. If you're here today, you're a Christian, it's because God chose you. And listen to this, because God chose you, you could choose him. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. God cho- if you're a Christian here today, God chose you, and because God chose you, you could choose him. He chose you so you can choose him. What do I mean? 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. You can't get around this, folks. He chose you. Some of you have never been chosen for anything in your life, but God wants you to know that he chose you. He chose you. He thought you were worthy of something. He loved you that much that he chose you to be on his team. And he wants you to know that today. John Corson said appropriately regarding this, try to figure out the doctrine of election, that we were chosen in him, yet we also have a choice. You may lose your mind. But try to explain away the doctrine of election, and you will surely lose your heart. For as confusing as election may, be, may appear to be, the fact that God actually chose us warms and strengthens our hearts. Listen, we don't have to uh, come to some end regarding that choosing. What, what we need to do is just just live in it, right? We just need to live in the fact that he chose you because the Bible says he did. And I don't understand how that all works. I'm just thankful that he did. Moody said this. He said, I'm so glad God chose me before I was born because I don't think he would have chosen me after I lived. Now, as funny as that is, that is completely wrong, you know, uh, and Moody knew that and he was joking about it. But listen, this, this this is important for you to understand. God knew exactly who you would become. He knew exactly all the decisions you would make. He knew how far you would go. And yet he loved you anyway, and he chose you. Is that incredible? That is love, folks. That is incredible love that he's done that for you and I. That we should walk holy and blameless. That is our response to a God that has chosen us. How do we do that? Remember, not in your own power, it's in Christ. We should walk in Him, holy and blameless. Listen, you're going to stumble along the way, but God sees you as holy and blameless. You, you just stay faithful to Christ. Stay faithful to what He's done in your life. Look to the cross. Allow the blood of Christ to cover you. It's in Him. I promise you, if you live at the feet of the cross, your life will match it. But if you try and do it in your own power and live in your own power, you're going to make a wreck of it. Walk holy and blameless. Be set apart for him. Thirdly, listen to this. He has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This is totally mind-blowing. God predestined us. That, That literally means marked out beforehand. Listen, this is irrefutable. It's in the Word of God. If you dissect this out, you completely miss the the, the entire process of God wooing a person to himself, that God drawing a a person to himself. He has predestined you. But, But what does the book of Romans say? What did he do first? He foreknew you. He foreknew you. And in fact, it tells us in this passage even that he foreknew you, that he knew you before the foundation of the world. He foreknew. He foreknew whether you would receive Christ, whether you would reject Christ. He foreknew everything about you, and then he predestined you. He foreknew you first. Then he predestined you. This is, what did he predestine us for? That is the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not the fact that he predestined you, but what did he predestine you to? Adoption. He predestined you for adoption. Now, I don't know what it's like to be a physical orphan. I've never been an orphan. I had parents. But, 
For those who live in an orphanage, I can only imagine that they would wish that there would be somebody that was thinking about them before they were born that said, you know, I want to adopt somebody, but let's wait. And then that baby was born and placed in this, play, in this orphanage or wherever it was, and that, that family said, okay, now it's time. Let's go get our child. And there that child was, predestined to be theirs. Predestined. It was, it was before the child was even born. They were thinking about the child. I can't wait till we have that little boy. Till, we, till that little boy, you know, is, is in our arms and we can love on him. And they were waiting. And they waited. And then that child was born and they received him in. That is what God has done for you. He was thinking of you from before the foundation where that he would adopt you into his family. And what comes with that adoption is incredible, incredible inheritance. Incredible inheritance. Why did God do it? He tells us right here. Because he's God. Because it's, it was his will to do it. It's the, the purpose of his will. He can do whatever he wants because he's God. But whatever he does is good. Because he's good. But know that he can do whatever he wants. Now some of you go, well, hold on a second here. He chose me. He predestined me. What about those people that go to hell? Does that mean that God didn't choose them? Does that mean that God didn't predestine them? Listen, you can make a wreck out of the image of God by trying to add your own thoughts to the Bible because the Bible does not say that. What the Bible says is that he chose you. It doesn't say anything about the people that don't come to Christ. The Bible also says that he predestined you. It doesn't say anything about predestining anybody else anywhere else. He predestined you you and I, to adoption. Anytime you look at the word predestined, it always has to do with salvation. It never has anything to do with damnation, ever. And people make God out to be this, this monster who is pre-chosen, whoever he, you know, just as if he's partial, but none, all of us stand level at the foot of the cross, so I'm not sure how he would do that, but, but we make God seem to be, uh, you know, partial to somebody somehow, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't add the idea that God predestined some to hell. What about Romans 9? Well, we can have that conversation later, and I will have that conversation with anybody in this place about Romans chapter 9, but I'm not going to do it right now because it will take too much time. What about Esau? You know, God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. You know, what about that? Well, we can talk about that. What about the fact of Pharaoh and God hardened his heart? We can talk about that too, but here's the reality is nowhere in the scriptures will you see God predestined somebody to hell. In fact, Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, um, you know, tells us that God ha has, um, where's my note? Revelation 3, 5 indicates that, you know, here's what it says. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of, this, this, out of the book of life. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before... This is Jesus speaking. And what he's saying is that, you know, and, and here's the thought is that, is everybody's name written in the book of life? Perhaps it is. And perhaps the reality of those who don't come to Christ, their name is blotted out of the book. That could be. I don't know. But here's what I know, is that nowhere in here does it say God predestined somebody to go to hell. Nowhere in the Bible will you find it. That would contradict John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him, not the elect, not the chosen, not the predestined, but whoever believes in him, which includes all those people, shall not perish but have eternal life. How do we conquer? How do we become one of those conquerors, Revelation 3.5 says? We just sang it through Christ. That's how we conquer. Re Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's through Christ that we conquer. Those who reject redemption, um, the Christ came to bring, they will be blotted out of the book of life. Sin, listen to this, sin is what condemns, not predestination. Sin is what condemns a person, not God's predetermined set-apartness for hell. 
That, that's not God. God didn't predestine somebody to go to hell before they sinned. It was because of sin. And people choose to go there. This leads us to the fourth and final work of the Father. He has blessed us with His glorious grace in the beloved, in Christ. God has given you and I grace upon grace through Jesus Christ. That means that we have an unlimited supply of unmerited favor from God. He has blessed you and I with this. This is the work of our Father. It is a fabulous work. Next, we look at the work of the Son in verse 7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Listen, you will not find redemption in anyone else, folks. It's in Christ and Christ alone. This is what Paul is saying here. <clears throat> you will have redemption in Him, in Christ. If you want to be bought back from sin, you must be found in Him. That is in Christ. It's through His blood we have been forgiven for our sins. Not only that, but we have the riches of His grace. Again, not because we earned it or deserved it, but solely because of the unmerited favor of God, the grace of God. Verse 8, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to the mystery of His will, according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan to the, to the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is so rich here. Paul is saying that in Christ we've been given revelation regarding God's will. You have been given understanding beyond your ability through, because of the will of God uh, regarding what? What have we been given understanding of regarding this inheritance that, that Christ has given us? Through Christ, or no, I'm sorry, we, we, we've been given this revelation regarding God's will to know His plan and His fullness of time. Now, that's incredible. What is the mystery of his will? Listen, it is this, that through Christ, all things are united in him, in heaven and on earth, in Christ. There is no other person, no, no other person that unites the entire world together, not God the Father, not God the Holy Spirit, but Jesus himself unites the entire world. All things were made by him and for him and through him, through Christ. He is literally what holds all things together, Colossians 1 tells us. It's in Him. And one day, when the fullness of time is complete, Jesus will reconcile all things to Himself. What does that look like for you and I? Look at verse 11. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the will of His count, or the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. You and I, who have trusted in Christ, will be given an inheritance in Christ. Again, we, we go from rags to riches. It's a transition. We, we go from life to death. We've been adopted into God's family, and thus we've been given an inheritance. Your inheritance has nothing to do uh, with, with what you've done, but who you've trusted in. That's all it has to do with. It has nothing to do. Now, there, is a, there will be a Bema Seed judgment where God will judge your good works at some point, but that has nothing to do with the inheritances you, you've been given in Christ. We've all been given this inheritance. It has nothing to do with your work. It has everything to do with Christ's work. Paul now speaks specifically about those who hoped in Christ. Now, he transitions here very quickly into speaking to Jews because Jews believe first. It's the Jew first, then the Gentile. So he wants, to, he wants people to understand there's a mixed crowd in every church. There's Jews and Gentiles. As he writes this letter, he wants the Jews to understand, okay, it, it, God has given us Christ. He promised the Jew Christ. And then he gave Christ, he gave Gentiles the, the ability to come and be grafted into, to become spiritual Israel. It's an incredible picture. But he wants us to understand that. And then he's going he's gonna to speak to the Gentile in a second. But he's talking about, talking to the Jew here, and he's just saying, hey, We've been, uh, you know, so that in we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. They should be the first ones to praise Him because they believed in Him first. He goes on here and he, he, he talks about, you know, uh, what the Holy Spirit, the works of the Holy Spirit are in our lives. Verses 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Paul mentions once again in Him. 
Jesus, speaking to the Jesus, Jesus here, you, now this is a transition back to, this is the Gentiles now. He says, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Pre-Christ, the Holy Spirit's work in our lives was to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 16, 8. It's through the conviction of the Holy Spirit that opens up the word of truth to us and causes us to understand the gospel of our salvation. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's our teacher. And so if you're here today and you've been convicted of sin, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you're a believer, that's the work of the Holy Spirit because he caused you to believe. He gave you the ability to believe. In fact, uh, Jesus said in John 6, 44, that no one, can, uh, no one can receive me unless the Father draws him. How does the Father draw him? Through the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work pre-Christ, when we come to Christ, and he's in work in us after we've come to Christ. Notice it says here that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This literally means to make secure. I don't know if you can, if this gets any clearer about your salvation than this right here. He sealed you. It literally means to make you secure. The question is, are you saved? That's really the question. It's not, will God save you if you're saved? Do I lose my salvation? Do I stay in salvation? The question is, do you have it? If you have it, then you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're secure in it. You didn't get it because of anything you did. And Jesus said, no one can take you from my hand or from my Father's hand. Right? You're doubly secure in Christ. You are secure in Him because you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He guards you. Not only that... But the Holy Spirit is also a guarantee for you. That is God's down payment upon you that he's coming back for you. That one day when you, you know, when you close your eyes or whether he comes in the clouds, that if you have the Spirit of God in you, you are his and he will for sure redeem you. Can, you can take it to the bank. It's a for sure thing. It's a guarantee. The Holy Spirit working in our lives after we come to Christ is a guaranteeing kind of work. He's guaranteeing that Christ is coming. You know, you get in those dark moments in your life and you're wondering, God, where are you? What are you doing? It's the Holy Spirit that guarantees you, reminds you, helps you to understand that Christ is coming back for you. He will not leave you. He's given you His Spirit. Jesus said it was to our benefit that He go away that the Holy Spirit might come. And He does incredible work in our lives. Listen, without the Holy Spirit, even right now, uh, the words, if they're making any sense, are, are a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit making them make sense. If somebody's able to clearly speak the, the, the gospel to someone else and they received Christ, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's all the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is that God uses you to do, whether it's singing, playing, you know, uh, speaking, uh, ministering, loving, whatever it is, all those things are a gift of the Spirit. And we just, we just talked about that not too long ago in Galatians chapter 6. The Holy Spirit is at work. He sealed you and He's guaranteeing you that Christ is coming back for you. The, the, the things that God has done, the things that God has done, this is, this is incredible this rendition of Paul just blurting out in one sentence the things that God has done. And I'll tell you what, if you're not encouraged today by what God has done in your life, you're, you're, you're simply not looking. You're not hearing. You're not allowing his word to penetrate your heart because what he just got done saying is simply incredible. That he would think that way about you. That he would think that way about me. Listen, he has given us undeniable riches in Christ. He has given us things that are, you know, exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever hope or dream of in Christ. The question for you this morning is, are you experiencing these things? Are you experiencing this redemption? Are you experiencing this inheritance? Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Are you walking blameless in, in Christ? Are you, are you living in the riches of Christ today or are you still clothed, sitting on the street as a beggar, waiting for heaven so that you can receive those riches in your life? 
God wants you to know today that these blessings are for you right now, right here, right now. All you have to do is receive them. And so it's your choice. And so I just want to challenge you this morning, man, that if you're here and you're wondering why it is that you're not experiencing the freedom that you want, you're not experiencing the peace that you want, you're not experiencing the comfort that you want, I'm telling you it's not God. I'm telling you it's you. So this morning, as we close, the worship team is going to come up, and we're just going to do a song. And you know what? You come and you declare to the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry that I'm blaming you for not receiving what you've already given me because your word tells me that I have everything that I need this morning for life and godliness. I have everything that I need. Right? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for just, Lord, helping us understand all that we have in Christ. And Lord, forgive us for not receiving it. Forgive us, Lord, for continually petitioning your throne room, asking you for more when we've not walked in what you've already given us. Lord, we ask this morning that you would change every heart in this place. God, that we would not be disgruntled with you because of what you're not doing, but we would simply look to all the incredible things you've already done in our lives and that we would just simply give you praise because you are worthy of it, Lord. We ask you today, Lord, as we close in this song, that you would move upon every heart in this place, that you would draw every person to that place of surrender to you once again, Lord, and just fully saying, God, you know, you are enough for me. No matter what it is that I go through right now, God, that you're enough, and I'm asking you, I'm just giving you full license to do whatever it is that you will. So we thank you, God, and we ask if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that doesn't have a right relationship with you, that they come forward and they receive Christ by praying with one of the people that will be up here in front. They're saying, man, Lord, I want what that guy says that you are offering today. Will you come forward and you receive Christ? You ask Jesus to come into your life, be your Lord and Savior, and you will receive these, these riches, but you have to walk in them. So we ask for your Holy Spirit to just do, do your incredible work in our lives even now as we close, we pray in Jesus' name. Again, the altar is open. I just want to challenge you, man. Don't sit back and do nothing. Do as the Holy Spirit leads you to do. If you need the Lord this morning, come forward. If you need prayer this morning, come forward. Just, just walk in the Spirit this morning, amen? Let's stand. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.